G'day everyone, my name is Tom Craig and you're listening to my podcast, The Help Side, where we speak to some of the most recognisable names in world hockey and get an insight into who they are, what they're about and what makes them tick. Now if you like what you hear, feel free to follow our socials at The Help Side on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook and be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'd absolutely love that. Welcome back to part B of episode 13. It's the help side of Moritz first start. Now, if you missed part A, go back and check it out. This will make a lot more sense. In this episode, Mo opens up about growing up as a young athlete in Germany, which included brushing shoulders with some pretty famous sports people. From there, we talk ACLs, leadership, and retirement. It's very, very good. You won't want to miss it. Rip in. This could be the last chance for Germany. Fester into the back of the net. Germany have saved themselves from two goals down. And it's two goals from their captain, Moritz Fester, that sends the German fans into overdrive. Germany then with a chance to take the lead at half-time. It is Fester from the top, goes high and beats George Pinner, beats Baron Middleton. And Germany have the lead going in here at half-time. Can you just tell us a little bit about growing up in Germany? Because um, the majority of the listeners are Australia and we, we don't really know how it works in Germany growing up. All we see is this highly polished team um, that, that rears its head at the right times. And I spoke a little bit to Mick McCann um, earlier in the, in the series and he kind of gave us a little, um, a coach's perspective, I guess, of how it works in Germany. But as someone who's grown up in Hamburg and grown up in Germany and played all the way through, can you talk a little bit about what that's like in Germany? Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Mick probably told you, and you you also know it, in Germany, we have this, um, I think, the most exaggerated club system (laughs) from a growing up perspective. So Mm. you, this is all about hockey clubs. So Mm. you, it's not connected to your school, Mm. playing hockey has nothing to do with your school or your university or whatever. It's something completely besides that. It's the club that you choose. And, um, that's where you grow up. So f- people find it hard to understand when you're not from Germany or maybe Holland, where it's a little bit similar. So my brother and I would come from school with our bikes and then just leave our school uh, stuff at home and then go with a bike to the club every single day, five days a week. And we would play hockey, tennis, football there. And, uh, and that, was, that was my youth between age seven and age 15. Mm-hmm. So, uh, three times a week we would have proper training and uh, I played tennis at that time. And then, and the other days we just, hang, we, we were just there with friends doing what we did play mm. ball for mm. whatever. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's really about those clubs and also the youth club system is so intense. It's so about, it's so, it's like professional almost the, the youth championships of the 13-year-olds, the German championships will have as many spectators as the male championships, if mm. you want. Um, so it is a completely different thing. Um, and uh, yeah, growing up was really only about fun for me because we never made those championships. I never made a single championship in Germany till, uh, till age 17. I didn't play the under-16 or under-18 um, national teams uh, I wasn't picked there basically just because my team was not good enough so that I never popped up at one of those big tournaments where coaches would have seen me. So, uh, But in the end, I think that was good because I didn't care so much till I was 18. 
Hmm. I wasn't following the national team too much. So I still had that fire in me when I st got the first opportunity to, to, you know, to be part of that, yeah. that whole world. And yeah. I really enjoyed that. Yeah. But growing up was more about fun, to be honest. Yeah. And, and a lot of different sports I gather as well, because there aren't too many people in the world that I know who have such an extensive knowledge. For example, like my first tournament, you'd, you'd, you'd think that I would remember the semifinal result or even what even happened there, but I'd, I'd obviously have no idea. But you know a lot about sport and you're a massive sports fan. So there are other sports involved in growing up as well? Yeah, I played, te I played tennis on a professional level till I was mm -hmm. 16. Um, my doubles partner on the G German tour was uh, uh, Misha Zverev, who, who's playing, uh, who played, I, th I think his best position was 20 in the world a couple mm. of years ago. His brother is number four in the world right now, Alexander Zverev. And um, mm. they grew up next to our house and his, his father was my coach. And I tried to become a famous tennis player. And um, <laughs> Alex, so the, his father uh, always told me uh, that I would have got, Got got it, and um, I could have really had a had a chance to do it, make it. But mm. when I was sixteen, it just felt wrong. I just I I didn't want to be by myself on the tennis court every day. I was I was training five times a week and playing tournaments at the weekend, and I just didn't want to do that anymore. I I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted to focus there and not hanging around on the on the tennis court court with my Russian coach and. Um, <laughs> That was just not for me. So <laughs> I quit. And I obviously don't regret it at all. Um, but sometimes I, I think about how it would have all got, come out, you know? So how mm. it would have, Yeah, of course. Which is a stupid question because it's obviously something that I can never, that will never be answered. But mm. I sometimes wonder if it would have been kind of, another thing or the same thing or completely different. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. That is very interesting. I mean, the, that's, that's one of the things that I love about hockey is that um, you've got your teammates around and I know we'll talk about this later, but um, you're also a great natural leader and, and other teams really see that. So um, it is a different, it's a totally different beast to the solo versus the team sport. Why hockey? Oh, that's, that's a family thing. Yeah, okay. um, so my, my dad played and, uh, and he basically he took me to the hockey pitch when I was, I don't know, uh, nil. And uh, so I was standing there in the kinder wagon. And, uh, and I started when I was five. Um, I started well, officially. So okay. I was, that was never, that was, that was not by choice. That yeah, was, yeah, that was yeah. not a question. You were forced that was into it. Raised. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was just there and I never left. <laughs> And you were able to keep up your hockey because obviously you were you were still quite good. I mean, no one improves that much between 16 and and going to your World Cup in 2006 at 21 or whatever. How were you able to keep up your hockey and your tennis? Or was it just too hard? I, I really don't know. I, I really cannot answer that question because I don't mm. remember. I just remember that I was I was a good player on my team. I one of the best players on my team when I growing up, but I don't know if I was good because we never played the really good teams, really. Yeah, you know gotcha. what I mean? Yeah. So I, 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 I remember that Oliver Korn, for example, who I played with for a long time in the national team later, he played for Dusseldorf, which was one of the best teams in Germany at that time, being my, he was my age. 
And we only played them once in a friendly match at whatever a tournament where you where you went camping with your team. And then, <laughs> so we played them then there, and I, I remember that we played quite okay. So we only lost three one, and I had a good game against them. And I thought, wow, I was not. It was not like they were making a fool of us during the game. So it was. So that was the first time where I felt like, okay, maybe we can compete in a way at least. I mean, we still lost at 3-1 very confidently. But um, yeah, so I, I don't really know if I was any good before age 18 or mm. something. When, yeah, when, I, when I started practicing with the first team at my club, they just got promoted to the first division then. And so for, for the first time, I felt like, oh, maybe Bundesliga is something I can play mm. uh, if I make it to the first team here. Mm. Uh, but it was really... Yeah, it was it was strange because then I started, and that's a little bit also how I always approached everything I did in my life. Um, so, for, I'm not a visionist to say the least. So I'm not someone that sees something um, behind five corners and thinks about it and is trying to find a way. I'm rather very um, uh, operative. Is that a word? So, yeah, I guess so. Uh, from a so I'm trying to set a goal that I think I can reach. And then I'm giving everything I have and beyond to reach that goal. And it, But I never had the goal to play in the national team um, when I was 15 or 16. But then when I was 18 and I suddenly saw that on the horizon that there would be a chance, then I gave everything I had to, to make that happen. And yeah. I started becoming a nerd and, and following every single game. and. Yeah, my memory works like that. I can recall every single game I played in the, in the international hockey. Mm. Um, I can tell you about every single game I played and yeah, okay. and what happened during those games. But <laughs> not because not not only because I my memory is not good. It's just because that I set myself thinking about those games so much before them, but also after them, trying to figure out what we did good or bad, uh, writing down stuff and figuring out what we have to do better against those players next time. I had a list about international players that I played against a lot, like Eddie Ocknen or Tönde Neuer. Or, uh, so trying to figure out what they did well and what, it, what they did not so well, try to remember that Eddie would always go with his forehand drag when he's in front of me. So in that situation, I'm not focused too much on my backhand um, so that he can't get me on the wrong foot. He still got me a few, many times on the wrong foot. But, <laughs> so I was trying to think about that a lot and, and yeah, improving there. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, you can, feel free to send through a copy of that if you want. But uh, it sounds interesting <laughs> as well because you're 16, right? You're, you're pushing to be, you're a professional, a junior professional tennis player and you're pushing to be on the circuit. And then it sounds like there's kind of this two-year period because I know you're a, you're a highly competitive guy. And if you're not, then I don't know, uh, you disguise yeah. it very well. But it seems like there's this two kind of year period where you're not really pushing for the for the German national team or pursuing your hockey, and you're not um, pursuing tennis either. What did you like? What were you focusing on in those two years? Yeah, that you got me there. That's a really good question, but I think that's just my bad memory. Pro, there was a pretty smooth um, uh, connection between not playing tennis anymore and then focusing on making it in hockey somehow. Mm. Uh, so there wouldn't have been two years, but it was mm. probably like so when I decided to stop with tennis which was, which was basically only forced by my parents or by my mom because she said you're too bad at school you cannot pursue two sports and not <laughs> be in school so 
choose one. Uh, so I did, and um, and uh, and then it took me maybe another half year uh, until I realized that I had a shot. And it was really only because I had a shot in ma on making the first team at UHC at my home club, which mm. was something I really wanted back then. Mm. And um, yeah, then it took another year maybe fighting for that dream, and then that came true in 2001, um, age 17, and I played my first game for that team. So yeah. But I was still far away from making the national team. So I played my first under-21 game late in 2003. So another two and a half years after, after I made the step to the first team at UHC. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that kind of delayed, not development, but perhaps delayed recognition? Because if I, if I think about you, I think of like a self-belief sort of thing. I would say that's, that's one of your hallmarks. Do you think that delayed recognition added to that? Yeah, um, I would... I would try to say it more positively it was for me it was i wasn't sick of playing for germany ever or the other way around i wasn't bored by playing for the national team mm. and that is probably also because i didn't have that feeling gotcha. starting with age 15 playing for the under 16s you know what i mean yeah so oh, yeah. um so i never got tired and uh i i, I lit that fire 2003 so mm. when I was already 20, 19, 20 years old, I, that's when I, when I, when that fire lit. And, um, I think that's, that's the reason why, why I, yeah. And why I played till the end and why I always wanted to play well for Germany. Cause I, I didn't have the opportunity to do that before. I could really appreciate that. Yeah. Gotcha. I think gotcha. sometimes, sometimes, especially in Germany, I, I see so many players playing 50, 60, 70, maybe even more games. How many games did you play for the, under, for the youth teams under 21, 18, 16? Probably oh. 100, right? You played many, I guess. No idea. Not sure. We don't really tally them like the Euros do. But anyway, continue. Okay. So they are counting that here. And I, there are players that played 100 games for Germany uh, before the age of 20 and without a single senior cap. And then they end up without any senior caps. Mm. And I wonder like, how's that even possible i mean if you play 100 games under 16 18 and 21 for germany how come you you don't make it in the in the top team there there must be a mistake somehow and i think it's most of the time it's motivation mm. uh they kind of lose that fire to, to to play for your national team because they did it 100 times when they were 50, age 15 to 18 mm. and that that shouldn't be that shouldn't be the right track yeah how do you sustain it how did you sustain that far throughout your career I, th I think it's difficult. And uh, I mean, I, tr I, I, I try to find my answer in that I didn't play under 16, under 18, and not so much under 21. Because that meant that those five years, basically, or four years, um, that I didn't play when I was that young. Yeah, I still liked playing for Germany when I was 29, 30. Uh, there are so many players in our generation that quit 20, age 28, 29. Because they were just tired and, mm. and they thought about what do I do after my career? What, what do I do with my life? So I played for the German national team for 13 years now. That's enough. And I think that's, that's a shame because many players quit on the very top of the game. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Did you have periods of, of you know, lacking motivation? Not really, because I basically think that I got uh, caught back into real life twice when I taught my ACL and PCL. Gotcha. So that was the time when I think I believe in that. I I'm I'm not superstitious, but I believe that your body tells you when you need a break, and if you don't listen, then he gets himself a break. Yeah. So I was playing too much hockey 
from 2008 to 2011. And I, I played every single test match. I played every single game for my club and I played every single tournament and everything. And I didn't have a break for more than 10 days during that time. Mm. And then suddenly after the 2011 European Cup, um, I got my first uh, best player award at that tournament. And then a week after that, I, I went back on the pitch playing a test match against a team from Hamburg, completely stupid. And I taught my ACL. And, um, and that was really the time when my, for the first time, my, as my body as well as my brain um, felt like, okay, this was necessary. I mm. needed this. Mm. I needed to focus on something else now for uh, four or five months. And, uh, and I had a quite good comeback to say the least in 2012. So I was <laughs> happy about that. No, I actually, I thoroughly believe that as well with the injury was, was there a prevailing sense of relief when you did it or what were the emotions that, that arose then? No, I was just panicking. Cause oh, really? Was, I, yeah, I taught my ACL, my ACL in 2011 on the 3rd of September. Oh, geez, so that's that close. Was, yeah. Yeah, that was, uh, that was just 10 that's months. That's my birthday, by the way. Yeah. Really? Yeah, side note. That's, that's a crazy incident. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so it's your fault, obviously. Obviously. Um, no, I was but, praying. <laughs> I was praying really hard that the Kookaburras would win the yeah. 2012 Olympics. <laughs> no, the... Um, so yeah, I, on the 3rd of September, I taught my ACL and, and I had 10 months, right? But I only had seven months, no, sorry, six months, uh, eight months till the German team had to be nominated. Mm. And so we made the decision to not get surgery and to just work it off from, uh, yeah, the muscles to get stronger. Um, and that was a really, really intense time for me. That was mm. probably the most intense time of my entire career. That was, yeah, gotcha. that was, that was sick. Because I I did nothing but trying to come back for that for that uh, twenty twelve Olympics. So you never got and, surgery uh, on your ACL. No, I never okay. got surgery on my ACL. Um, it's like I I'm not a doctor. I have no idea. But they uh, they said if you if you want to do if you well, if you were doing surgery then you will not be able to come back to the Olympics. They said because mm. it's just not enough time. So I said okay then that was the decision. So let's go. And started working out the next day and did it for five months. And I played the um, I played the test, test tournament in May in London, the pre-Olympic mm. yeah, yeah, tournament yeah. already. And and I was more than fit for that. So yeah, I was really that was a good feeling to be back then. Yeah, I can imagine it would be. I'm interested in this psychology degree that you did. At what stage yeah. did you? Is that something you've always been interested in, or is that something that sport kind of brought you in because it sounds like you're very interested in the in the mind side of sports and what goes on between yeah. your ears is that was that a motivation to study psychology yeah i love it i, yeah. I always loved it and um, i love thinking about it funny part about it is i don't really like it for me mm. during sports so i'm i i like thinking about it a lot but i never so we always had a had a, a psychologist with us during tournaments and mm. also training camps um, he was basically, we found a cool way to do it because he was just an uh, offer for the players. So yeah. people could use him to talk to him and stuff. Yeah, that's but we brilliant. didn't have the, those big sessions or whatever. Yeah. And many players used it, mm. I, well, I, which I think is really cool. But mm. I, never, I never really <laughs> wanted to use it. But I, I would have loved to be him myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, because I thought about it also so much and I... I thought about the players and what I think, how they can improve and what they should do. 
differently and what I should do differently. So I thought about that a lot. And studying that was just basically trying to find uh, proof for my thoughts. You know what I mean? Yeah, I gotcha. So I always, I always loved reading articles or also theories about things that I thought about also a lot. And then some of them were proven and some of them were completely different. So I loved the theory behind the ideas that I had for so long about mm. um, psychology and sports, which I think is on the top level. I, without exaggerating, I think it's at least 50% of the deal. Yeah. Um, because the difference between you guys in, in an Olympic Games tournament and us is just basically not there. We could mm. play 10 times and it would probably end 5-5. Five, five. Yeah. So it's only about that very day and how can you like beat the other team on that very day. And, mm. um, and that is definitely, I mean, it's not possible without your skills in the sport that you play. But when it comes to those knockout games, it's, it's, I think it's even more than 50%. Yeah, I, I agree. Is there a reason you didn't actively seek it yourself? I don't know. No, maybe this is also honestly a little bit because it always depends on the person. Maybe I just didn't have the, that connection also with the guy. Mm. Um, Cause I talked about that with many players mm. at that time, but, um, but I didn't have a real connection there. So I didn't, didn't find it for me. Yeah. Gotcha. To be okay. cool. Yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I want to talk about winning and leadership now. I mean, we've spoken about it a fair bit, but I want to go back to it. Um, directly and you you captained your country on many occasions you captained your country in the 2016 rio olympics um but what is it about the mindset of you that makes you such a such a good winner because i mean a lot of people play this game and a lot of people um fail to have the same measure of success that you've had and if people think about you and and your captaincy and the teams that you're involved with i mean you you're known as a winner someone who just gets it done What's your approach? Is that, is that fair? That's something that you, you push for above all things, just winning? Well, I, <laughs> I'm flattered. Uh, I appreciate uh, your thoughts. And I mean, we play together, so um, it feels even a little more uh, convincing when you say that. But to be honest, that's something I never thought about so much. Mm. So uh, I, I, I think especially in, um, especially in, um, in, in, in hockey, I, I, I just did. I, mm. I just tried to do what I what I do, and I never thought so much about the theory behind it. I I always thought about winning and and try to find ways to win. And and I had the biggest discussions with people from from my from my past um, hockey career times because I always told the guys people were sometimes furious at me because I would scream too much in training <laughs> or I was and not nice or whatever. And, and I, I always felt really not understood at that time because I, I, my goal was always to try to make the guys around me better and as well as myself. And mm. I, I wanted to, to make a better player out of everyone I was playing with and mm. using that advantage to win games as a team. And mm. sometimes I got lost on that way because people were just mad at me, especially in club hockey more than in international hockey. And they were just like, oh, it's not fun to play with him. So I had to change a little bit on that approach. Um, uh, that was, by the way, also during the time 2011, 2012, when I realized that my 
thoughts and my approach was not taken as well as I thought it should be. Mm. And um, so I, I adopted a little bit and tried to to communicate in a different way. But yeah, in the end, I, I, I felt like I I had to just do what I can best in order to to um yeah to lead but i i'm not a big fan by the way of this um leading from the front so uh, you know um uh, walk the how do you say that walk the talk or, or something, yeah, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that yeah. i'm i think it's more about being authentic and doing what you're good at and i was i mean you know me i was not the guy who would be uh, at 750 for every eight o'clock meeting <laughs> and i wouldn't also be the guy to you know uh, stick a hundred percent to any game plans or not talking back to a coach or whatever. Um, I, I was more always like the, I, I was trying, I think I, I, I did what I could do best. And I tried to think about the hockey, the way that I was thinking about it. And that was sometimes very controversial for coaches mm. and other players, but well, I didn't care. So that mm. was, that was me. And, uh, and with most of the players and, and coaches I, I worked with, um, that was probably in the end the formula for success because we, yeah, we had differences and we had struggles and we were even mad at each other. But in the end, the tension created something good. And mm. yeah, that's, mm. that's I remember. how I, I see it. And, and by the way, yeah, before you say, tell that story, <laughs> by the way, a really good example for that is uh, the Hockey India League because yeah. I really think that one of uh, that one of my strengths if i am allowed to say that is um working together with people and not so much looking at where they come from or what they do or whatever just trying to figure out the best possible connection that can make us win championships and and uh in the first year everyone said it will be impossible for uh, a team with Ashley Jackson and Mo to win a championships because championship because they are just too much trying to focus on who is the leader in the team and it wasn't the case at all. We found a great way to to connect and the same thing happened in the last year. I think we had mm. many very successful players and on that team as well. And but I think we found a very smart structure of focusing on just being successful during that uh, that last HIL season um, mm. when we when we when you joined the team. Yeah. Um, so and I and I think that was the best example because mm. I I don't know if you remember but we did and you remember probably better than I do um but it was every team session with Mark the coach Mark Hager and with GT and Moose and you guys and we were it was only about how can we win this and uh, what do we have to do it was that was our focus all the time we did did we even practice during the entire season I don't even remember what <laughs> seriously <Did we? laughs> I remember this one time when we were in Mumbai. And I think we had the game on Thursday and we had our last training on Wednesday morning, right? And Thursday night, we obviously played. And I remember we went to yeah. the pitch for the first time and Hagar, Horry, had the whiteboard and he said, like, this is the starting lineup for Thursday. Go have a hit on the pitch and then I'll see you then. And no joke, yeah. there was no teaming. There was absolutely nothing. And we ended up winning that game, actually. I think you scored a couple of goals. Um, but it was just, it, it really was, as you say, it was crazy. Yeah, and, and uh, but I think it was the, for this team or for this squad, it was exactly the right way. So I remember he was offering goal shooting sessions from time to time. Yeah. So where like uh, guys would go who maybe didn't play so much or the goalkeepers went. Mm. But it was for that connection, for that group, it was the perfect way to do it. Yeah. 
we were, I remember talking with all the teams that were there, they were talking to us, telling us, oh, we did shuttles yesterday or whatever. <laughs> and we were like, oh no, we had a beer uh, and it was good. <laughs> well, for me, it was actually almost a holiday and I'm, and I'm picking up the fact that you were kind of running the team. So maybe the fact that I only played probably like 80 or 85 minutes for the entire tournament. And that was when everyone got sick in Bhubaneswar. I think everyone had pizza and um yeah. well, ice cream i think it was the ice cream or something and everyone got sick and that chinese. was when i played it was chinese, it was chinese. It was and i played 95 percent of my minutes for that tournament were in that game when everyone else was green <laughs> that's hilarious yeah. anyway um but i remember this one time when we were, i think it was the final oh no it was the semi-final against um up and i remember you were on the bench and i was on the bench obviously and i remember you were like you were screaming at one of the um the Indian guys at the back. I think it was a left half or something. You you probably know who it was. It was Nilan or Hernando. Yeah. Something. And I don't. Yeah. To be honest, I don't know if he knew what you were saying because you were you were yelling so loudly and just I don't know what he'd done. But I remember I, I said to you like, do you think that helps? And you were like, ah, oh, no, no, probably not. And then you kept yelling like you just you you kept doing it. And I'm pretty sure the whole part of it is that it's just this force of kind of will with you as a as a leader and this is something that i i was able to observe a lot is there's just kind of this force of character and this desire to win that is so infectious so regardless of whether like if i had done the same thing if i had screamed at him or if another person screamed at him i don't think it would have the same effect but i think it is it is definitely that kind of force of character that um that that worked so well with our team do you remember that incident or no um no i i don't uh don't really recall that incident but uh, i i want to i want to um say something because it sounds now a little bit like uh yeah so everything i did was for a reason and was well thought through and this is <laughs> more wrong than anything else so obviously i did so many mistakes and yelling at people as i said or um not thinking about it being too emotional during games uh i i think i didn't get a single card in my, my entire career um, that was not only because I was emotional, reacting on something which I thought wasn't fair or whatever. Um, so, uh, yeah, no, that, I made so many mistakes there. So, uh, obviously, that was maybe even one of them. But in the end, also, uh, it's true what you said. So, the effect uh, was sometimes uh, also part of the game. So, I would mm. also sometimes scream at people um, only to show others. Uh, and that was maybe not fair to pick maybe the, the the weakest link and scream at them to show the others that they have to, you know, move again and, and cannot rest. Mm. Um, that was sometimes strategy, but in 95%, probably like the time that you just recalled, uh, <laughs> that is also just being stupid and being emotional on the pitch. Well, you shouldn't have told me that because now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop using it as a, as a teaching point. Our hero of hockey for this week is Alex Tyrrell from Altona Hockey Club. A big thank you to Caleb Scanlon for sending this one in. I hope you enjoy your $100 voucher at Voodoo Hockey and get yourself a sweet stick. The voucher should be in your inbox. Now, Caleb writes, Alex is the current club president of Altona Hockey Club in Victoria. Side note, shout out to everyone down there. I hope you're going okay with everything going on. Hang in there. We're thinking of you. Now, Alex is a great leader for the Seagulls in what has been a pretty brutal time with the pandemic. Caleb writes that Alex puts an enormous amount of time and energy into the club and his passion is evident for all to see. It is suspected that Alex might be the youngest hockey club president. 
in Australia. And Alex is apparently still the fittest at the club. Brilliant effort, mate. That's a lot. Does this make him possibly the fittest club president as well? We don't know. We do know that there is a club president at the Ride Hockey Club named Glenn Castenson who does run the 1K time trial with the first grade squad. Um, who knows? Maybe we can organize a battle of the fittest club presidents when this is all over. Probably not. I doubt it, but it'd be quite the race. Thanks, Caleb. Well done, Alex. You're our voodoo hero of hockey for the week, and you're in the running to win a voodoo prize pack valued at up to 600 Aussie dollars. Thanks for everything you do for the sport in a very difficult time, mate. You're a legend. Now, anyone else with someone who deserves some recognition, please don't hesitate to get in touch and get your hero in the running to win the voodoo prize pack. Plus, just for nominating, you'll instantly get a $100 voucher to be spent on a fresh voodoo hockey stick Check out our socials to de- for details. This will probably close in September. So if you do have someone in mind, don't hesitate. Get their name in and we'll get in touch. Now, back to Mo. Have you seen <laughs> The Last Dance? Yeah, sure. So, so I mean, you talking about your own mantra around 2011 and 2012, talking about just that will to win and... Um, and pushing everyone around you to be their best so that your team can perform the best. That sounds a lot like the way Michael Jordan approached his, his bulls. And he was kind of, um, it was a little bit kind of out. I guess he was, he wasn't universally liked, I guess. Um, but the thing that you yeah. said is, is getting to know that not everyone's going to respond the same to the, to the same treatment. And you spoke about the learnings that you had in that space. Um, can you talk about things that changed after you kind of discovered that for yourself? Yeah, I think the first thing that I had to learn uh, was that it's not about being globally liked, but mm. rather to being respected. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I never, I never cared so much about being liked. I, I just cared about being respected. I always wanted to. Uh, get that feeling from everyone I played against and uh, if if I wasn't respected that was a big uh, confidential confidence um, drop for me because it showed me that I did something wrong and in 2011 I had the feeling that especially in my own team people lost the kind of respect um, not because I played bad it was the other way around just basically because of the way I communicated with them mm-hmm. so after that I was trying to go go a lot more into um, personal conversations and uh, talking directly with players after games, trying to get what they thought about it and giving feedback there as well. And uh, I tried to give more feedback beside the, next to the pitch than only on the pitch when it was emotional. Mm. And I think that led to the fact that people took, um, uh, took um, criticism and feedback on the pitch less as an offensive act after yeah. that, because yeah. I would still talk to them before and after the game saying, look, here's the thing. And I don't like this and that, and I would like you to do this and that. And if then they didn't do it during the game, then I would say, come on, we talked about this. And then that was fine. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that was the biggest change that I started communicating a lot more also uh, apart from the pitch. And um, yeah, those individual conversations led to the fact that I understood what the people were thinking more. So uh, when I would scream at someone before that, I would just scream at them and not knowing what's going on in his life at all. And uh, now I knew 
I was talking to him before, he would tell me, oh, I'm struggling so much right now because I don't know why, but I, um, my 3D game's not working. I don't know why. So I could push him during the game saying, come on, believe in yourself. You can do this. Mm. And if he did a good 3D, something good, a 3D skill during that game, I would scream at him saying, come on, great. That was amazing. Look, I knew you can do it. And you, before that, I wouldn't have told him that because I, it wasn't a very important scene. But now I knew that this was a struggle for that player. So I could, you know, react on it and give him that support him and that confidence there. And this is the positive effect, but also the other way around. So um, it was, it helped me being more individual, having a more individual approach, communicating with the team. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. That's a good point. I like that. Talking about your, your personal game now. Um, I mean, we've spoken about leadership and we've spoken about, your position within a team um a few points i want to cover on you as a player yourself one is this this self-belief and confidence piece um because as you can tell like sometimes you would know as many as others you can pick up when someone's feeling confident and and um and comfortable in their own ability and sometimes guys just you know some players can be all over the place on a certain day but it, it appears that you, you're always confident and you always had this, this level of self-belief. Where does that come from and how did you maintain that? If that's how you felt. Yeah, you will laugh. You will think this is funny because I never thought that I was a really good hockey player. Mm. Um, so I, I, really sometimes, I had sometimes a nightmare that was a little bit like I could explain it in a way that I always had the feeling that one day people will realize that I'm a fraud and that I <laughs> actually, I'm not a really good hockey player. So that was like, like in a movie or whatever, because, but I had the, so I had the, between maybe like 2010 and 2013, 14, 15. So the, during those years, I had the self-confidence that I, I, I knew I mean, this is not knowing, but from, from my self-confidence perspective, I knew if I have a ball in midfield, no one can take it from me. Mm. I, because I just knew what to do, mm. uh, how to shield it with my body, uh, how to do the right movements uh, um, at that time. And uh, what I needed to do without, and you will not find many scenes of me dribbling past players or uh, doing the greatest drags, skill, tricks, whatever. Um, but I knew how to keep the ball and I had a quite good vision of the, of the, of the game so I could get a free hit and then make a good pass or maybe even using, um, back at that time, not later, <laughs> using the speed to go around players. But I, you wouldn't find me in one against three situations where I dribbled my way past uh, a number of players. Mm. So, uh, um, and I discovered that my strength was rather the um, finding gaps in defenses and uh, setting up our forwards in the best way and giving feeding them with balls that that many other players couldn't uh, and I I realized this is my strength so strengthen your strength and focus on that and that's why that's why I always had this feeling like there were so many better hockey players from an individual technical perspective in the world um, and also in my team but if you know, and I mean, no, obviously in, in uh, quote marks, <laughs> if mm. you know that no one can take the ball from you, then this is a very strong, uh, that's a very strong asset. Mm. 
Yeah. So um, yeah, and that was basically everything about my my uh, confidence that mm. I knew it is difficult to get the ball when I have it, mm. and uh, yeah, just go from there. Mm. So that's what I said when I said earlier uh, about the the Belgium defense or your good defense, uh, which I totally believe. But I think that that was probably my biggest strength that I would have been able to find solutions against that when I, when I had the ball mm. and um, which is by the way, a fact because we, uh, we didn't lose to Belgium in a single imp very important international game throughout my career. Um, I was always very proud of that fact because they, they, they got so much better over the years and, uh, but we always found a way through through their defense, yeah. and um, and that was basically also because I was a player who was looking for those solutions. And by the way, so was Toby Hauke, hmm. um, who was very similar from his approach of style. And uh, yeah, with us in in midfield, only basically looking for passes to set up our forwards against those those defenses um, was I think was one of the most important parts of our game in that time. So yeah, my self-confidence basically just rose from the fact that I knew it was hard to get the ball from me, and uh, and that's my strength. Mm. Mm. A lot of a lot of great players talk about trusting in their preparation as well as being a an anchor for their self-confidence. Sounds like you and um, Toby Hauka shared a pretty good relationship, and I know that you spoke about um, you know your preparation and watching a lot of video. I can imagine. Do you think? a lot of that confidence came from before the game as well. Did you watch a lot of video with Toby or by yourself? Yeah, I, I most definitely didn't watch as many videos as Toby. Mm. <clears throat> but because if I'm a hockey nerd, then he is the godfather oh, really? of hockey nerds. <laughs> uh, yeah, but <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> but um, we watched a lot of video, yes. We did mm. a lot of preparations and we would talk a lot about hockey. Toby and I would between... Uh, and it was it's funny because we... Up, uh, uh, um, the, next to the pitch we never connected in a way that people would think mm. um, but on the pitch it was just we it, it just worked out pretty well and yeah. and by the way also because we were confrontating each other and challenging each each other all the time and it was also there was always this running gag in the german team that it's about uh uh, the who's the biggest rooster in the hand check that, that's how you say it is it's the german it's the german translation um it was always about people were always making fun of oh the, this game or mo was better so it's one zero for mo oh next game, oh now toby is up to one so it was and this challenge made us better yeah i really cool. believe so that's cool that's cool you talk about the midfield but i know that um you spent a bit of time, especially, well, for example, yeah. in Champions Trophy, you played free defender. And a lot of the time, especially when I started playing, um, you know, initially, I didn't even realize that you played in the midfield for the majority of your career. How did that self-confidence piece build into to playing at the back where you don't necessarily have the ball in the midfield to, to play to that strength? Well, maybe you will see that when you get older but you that's the normal way you move back <laughs> you move back a little um well look i think what i just said about my strength mm. is something that is um very helpful in that build up position mm -hmm. and with with the years and uh, i turned i turned 30 in 
2014. Um, so the last two or three years of my career, it was a little bit like um, it was easier to pursue that uh, uh, that strength of mine with the ball, finding solutions and passes uh, without the struggle of putting myself into a free position in the first place, <laughs> mm. just to, if you know what I mean. So mm. now I had the opportunity to, you know, have the field in front of me and being one of the only players on the pitch with eyes on the, on the entire pitch and um, looking in the playing direction, which is something that obviously midfielders and forwards always have to fight for <clears throat> to mm. be able to look to the other goal. And um, yeah, I think that was why we chose to do it. So um, we have that strength in the build-up um, on our side there. And yeah, it worked quite good. I, I like that. I like the new challenge. I think it was also a, a, co a confidence boost for me that it worked quite well in Champions Trophy in 2014. Mm -hmm. So that uh, I felt like I'm, I'm defining my career new and I'm, I'm thinking about completely new things suddenly. And I never thought about defending until 2014. And suddenly that was <laughs> the most part I thought about during the entire day. So, yeah, I think it, it gave me a new challenge and I love that. I really like that. That's interesting. I've only got a couple more things because I know you've, um, you've been yeah. pretty generous with your time. The one thing I want to talk about is Rio 2016, two pieces. The first yeah. bit is obviously that quarterfinal against New Zealand. And the second one yeah. is the semifinal being your last um, international game by my understanding um and and the the shots of you sitting on the backboard and i know that you posted something recently of the argentinian coach running the length of the field to come and embrace you on the backboard as you sat there um looking pretty pretty disappointed and pretty shattered and we'll get to that but for for now let's talk about that new zealand game and and the last three or four minutes yeah well look the new zealand game i mean that's obviously crazy hockey history and no one could have thought that something like that would happen <clears throat> being 2-0 down with four minutes to go um, and uh, to say I mean this would be a very long story now I'm trying to cut it short as um, so we score I scored this 2-1 the corner uh, through the legs uh, which was <clears throat> not by surprise because their goalkeeper during that game he was he was completely in my head he, he was just changing the sides that he would step to. So everything we talked about before about my corner, he basically, they, they had a solution because they were just speculating. They let mm. two runners, this classical suicide runners, run from one side and then the goalkeeper would just stand next to the post on the other side and they swapped. So mm. the first two corners, I just basically flicked into his shin pads. <laughs> and, um, and then I, didn't, I wasn't sure what I should do, so I made a couple of mistakes. And uh, six corners later, it was 2-0 for them. Hmm. So with that corner, I started, finally started thinking about it. And, I, and I, so I flicked the ball like 80 centimeters ne next to the post because I, I was sure that then I could uh, get him on the way to the post. Hmm. So not flicking into his pads and it worked. So I, that was exactly what I wanted to put it through his legs there. And, um, and then on the last corner, 40 seconds before the end, we thought about, and I was talking to it with Toby, uh, we, we said, okay, come on. He's always standing on one post. So you just have to look from where the runners are coming 
and you don't even have to beat the goalkeeper. You just have to beat the runners because then the goalkeeper is not in that corner for sure. Mm. And so if you, if you have a few guys or everyone who's listening, uh, if you, if you are looking at that next time, then you will see that I, I pull it or I drag it quite far to the right, a lot further than I usually do uh, to get around the first runner. And then I just put it medium height, medium hard, just in the middle of the goal, basically. Mm. <clears throat> so that was, fortunately, that was a really good thought the two of us had before that corner um, to, to beat them there. And, uh, and then, I mean, the last seconds, I, that's just ridiculous. I played an <laughs> unbelievably stupid pass from the back into the forehand. That was you. Of Hugo English. Yeah, that was my pass. Crazy. I, Good I tried setup. To pass, I, tried, I tried to pass the ball to Martin Swicker and he thought that I would just flick it. Mm. So he turned, uh, turned around his left shoulder and that was the second I passed the ball to him. So it was unbelievable. And so Toby got the ball back by putting his backhand down and that was a really bad pass. And to, to be honest, I mean, people in Australia might maybe laugh about it. I'd said, said this once in a, in a more New Zealandish surroundings and they were pretty pissed. But <laughs> really, it was just unbelievable bad defending. Mm, they had yeah. six guys in the back. They had six guys running backwards and they were all staring at the ball. No one took out Florian on the, on the long post. And Florian was sprinting from our own circle. And there were five guys sprinting next to him and no one cared about him. They were all six people were looking at the ball with a couple of seconds left. If someone would have tackled him before the 25, that's a yellow card, but the game is over mm. or whatever. I mean, mm. and, um, and I mean, this is lack, this is believing in yourself, of course, but I want to, don't want to make more out of it as it already is. It is an incredible, magical Olympic moment in nowadays German sport history, mm. but Unfortunately, not with a big happy end, but with at least on that day a, a pretty cool happy end. Mm, mm, for sure, bit of panic. It seemed like there was there was just kind of panic stations there for the for the Kiwis at the back. Um, and and your yeah, final 100%. game, it, it is it was your last game, yeah? No, it wasn't. Uh, oh, the semi. Oh, obviously the bronze medal match. Sorry, my bad, my bad. But that that backboard picture. Can you can you just talk to us about what what was going on in your mind as you as you sat on yeah, the I mean, backboard? Uh, I mean, I was, I was just devastated. Uh, we were 5 nil down after, I don't know, 45 minutes or something. Um, I, think we, I think we scored two more goals, but I'm not even sure about that. Um, and I was, just, I was just waiting for the final whistle and, uh, and for this to be over. And then I, I just, it was very difficult there because you remember that we had the, uh, well, we had those rules there that um, you could only um, you had to, you couldn't leave the pitch. You had to go through mixed zone first, and mm. then this and that. And don't ask me. So you could basically not hide. You were mm. stuck there. So I I went to that goal, and I, just, I I didn't even think about it. I sat there. I I, I wasn't even crying. Uh, I was just my head was filled with thoughts and. Um, yeah, I don't know. I was just everything was going through my mind, and then and then Carlos, who uh, happened to be uh, a big supporter of myself, to say the least, uh, <laughs> uh, I would I would I would go as far as saying he was he was probably my biggest fan throughout my entire career. <laughs> he would he would text me a lot after the games. He would even after when we played them and we won, he would come to me and say, "Wow, 
I'm I'm such a big fan. And his children, I had I took probably like a hundred pictures with that his children throughout my career. So uh, I really appreciate that moment when he just bet me in his most his biggest success of his coaching life, and uh, he chose not celebrating with his team in the in the in the changing rooms, but running to me and uh, and he didn't even he didn't even say anything, but he was congratulating. Uh, me to my career and mm. uh, and he was he was not going like i'm sorry or something he was just he was just saying wow man t- as soon as you can put your head up and think about what you achieved and i was really appreciative of that moment and i wished him well for the final and i i i, I like that because i think i think it's really easy to to uh it's pretty easy to lose games and to not lose your head and still shake hands with the opponents, but it's at least as important. And that was, what I was tweeting about the other day, being a good winner, winning mm. games, and then, uh, and then still being able to, to be, uh, be nice about it and, mm. and be humble and, and taking it not for granted, but just what you just achieved. Mm, of course, of course. Uh, so that was that was it. You you went on to win the bronze medal, um, which is three medals from three Olympics, which is just a spectacular record, um, and and into retirement. And you've got a few things that are going on. Um, there's the High Rocks World Championship of Fitness, which you're a you're a founding partner of, um, and also you do a lot of podcasting um, and these sorts of things. How how have you found retirement and and those? What are they? First of all, what are they, and how have you found them compared to international hockey? Well, it's a completely different thing. I, I, for me, it was really important. Um, it took me probably a year or something or one and a half uh, to really find, to, to lit another fire. Because mm. for me, that's always my impression, uh, expression that I say, you need to have a fire in you to get up in the morning and, and you know, and, and do some and stand up and know what you want to do and do something that you, that you, that you love. And I did that for 20 years. I knew I got up in the morning and I knew exactly what I loved and what I wanted to do. So I, I did some stuff. I, I was part of a quite big TV show in Germany after uh, my career and um, did that. So that was quite interesting to, to, um, yeah, to experience that kind of thing. And, uh, and then a year later, I founded with two partners, this uh, high rocks and I can just, because <clears throat> we will, also come to Australia soon, and and uh, this is this is basically also made for for the Aussies. Um, mm. It's a fitness competition that consists of running eight times one kilometer and eight different workouts. But it's too complicated now. You can check out on HyRox.com, uh, and it's it's basically a sport of fitness or so something CrossFit would be for the overall experts, the top fifty in the world, where you have to do handstand push-ups and stuff that only GT and some others can, but uh, definitely not everybody. And in our competition, everybody can do it, but the best will need 55 minutes and the worst will need four hours. Mm. So it's like a competition, like a triathlon or or Mm. marathon or something like that, that is time tracked and stopped, but only with fitness workouts, like pushing a sled or pulling a sled and then running. Mm. Uh, So the the best mixture of endurance training and and CrossFit or, or functional fitness training and we founded this company a couple, uh, three years ago. Uh, we are having 35 events now in eight different countries. I uh, have a big office in, in America and in Germany. So from America, we're leading the, the whole American market and 
and I'm uh, head of the European market. So my partner is going to the US and doing it from there. <clears throat> yeah, and I lit my fire there. I'm going up, I'm getting up in the morning, now driving to the office, being a pretty regular office guy uh, and uh, just love it. We have 25 people working in our European office now. And um, yeah, this is a new part of leadership, a new part of bringing a team together and working with that. And I'm trying to take as much as I can from my time in hockey. Uh, to yeah, to be as good as I possibly can. Mm, mm. And I've I've seen videos of High Rocks and and what it's like. And I have to say the workouts look ridiculous. Not only that, but it seems like a very it's a very well oiled machine, and it looks like a lot of fun as well. Um, so I'm excited to for that to to get to Australia on Sunday. Uh, so we just started due to Corona times. We just started the a virtual competition five weeks ago, and mm. on Sunday there will be the live show of the of the grand final of that virtual competition. We had 7,000 participants uh, from all over the world and there's a, an Australian in the final. So this is uh, quite interesting that we're talking now. There you uh, go. Because uh, for whatever reason, someone from Australia signed up and finished second in the overall competition. So he's in the big final on Sunday. Yeah. How many in the final? Interesting. And it's four. Oh, wow. And it's okay. going to be a live competition, live competition that is streamed uh, split screen those four are doing the same workout at the same time all right christopher Wooly is doing it from australia and then we have two guys from america and one from germany that's crazy so it's gonna be pretty epic <laughs> that'll be yeah. awesome finally um at the end of every podcast we do a couple of quick questions just to just to wrap things up okay um the first one is who's the best player you've ever played with and i have a suspicion it's going to be christopher zeller but we'll see yeah it is christopher zeller i have mm. to say that yes mm. Okay, awesome. And and we usually divulge a little bit more information, but to be fair, you've spoken a fair bit about Christopher recently, so we'll skip that. Best yeah. player you've ever played against and why? Uh, the best player I ever played against is, uh, I would go, I would probably, let me think one second. Uh, yeah. I, I, there, there are many, and I, I, but I want to get the, because I could also say Christopher Zeller because I played a lot against him in club hockey, but that's not what I mean. So from a personal perspective, I would go with a defender and uh, I would say, I would say it's Mark Knowles. Okay. Why? And yeah, because uh, so Nolsey had this uh, incomparable vision of the game. So when you were playing against him, you, it wasn't enough to focus on how to get past him. It was also about if he gets the ball from you, he could really hurt you very quickly with either a pass or even a, a dribbling and uh, and going forward with the ball and then and then enter uh, entering the hour twenty five and finding a pass there. So uh, that was when you played against him, you had to think about that, and that really affected the decision making. So when I was standing in front of Nosy, I wouldn't try things I would try against someone else because you fear too much that not only you lose the ball, but that could really hurt you in the process. Mm. So. Um, yeah, that, that was something very special about him. You know, there are so many defenders that are only being there to defend. And then and then you can try whatever you want. Because if you lose the ball, you know, I'm always back there and I will always find my way back in this, the situation. But with Nozi, you, it was always, you were always struggling. Mm. Mm. Agreed, agreed. And it might interest you to know that a few people who I've interviewed previously on the show have um, said you were the best player they've played against several of them actually oh so, interesting there you go that's um, that's really interesting yeah yeah and they said uh well you can go and have a listen um 
Final question. Uh, let's pretend that someone has just been elevated to captain of their national team and you've got to give them one piece of advice for embarking on their new role as the leader of that team. What would it be? Oh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's an easy question. It's, um, it's not about you. It's about the team and it's not about that role. It's, it's about the, what you do with it. And uh, so make sure you understand your team, make sure your team understands your approach, what you want to do, how you want to lead that team and never stop talking. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'll take that. I know you've got a couple of girls who require your attention, a couple of young kids. So I'll let you go. Thank you so much for giving up your time and speaking to me. This has been absolutely brilliant. I've, I've got a lot out of it. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks. No worries. And I really liked it too. It's like sitting together at a campfire talking about old times. I really like that. That's, I have to do this more. That's it for another episode of The Help Side. Special thanks to my production team of David Moore and Tim Collier, plus countless others working behind the scenes to get this to you. You're the real MVPs. Again, if you're liking the show, please like, subscribe. You know the drill and get in touch with us via our socials. We would love to hear from you. Anyway, that's all, folks. See you next week.